Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Trier Bryant, co-founder and CEO of Just Work the Company, and I'm so excited to be here with you this evening and to introduce and welcome Kim Scott, who's the author of Just Work, Get Shit Done, Fast and Fair, and my co-founder. Kim, as a former CEO coach at tech companies like Dropbox and Twitter, Kim's career has been dedicated to managing teams and creating better workplace environments. Kim believes people work best when they have healthy and honest work relationships. In her new book, Just Work, Kim challenges the idea of professionalism and advocates for holistic workplace humanity. As companies continue to diversify, leaders are challenged to create a safe and justice-oriented working environment that concurrently promotes creativity, creating individuality, and traditional business models. Just Work gives leaders the necessary tactics to create more and establish new norms of collaboration and respect. Tonight, we'll be discussing a lot of this in the next hour, and we want to make sure that we leave time to answer your questions, too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the YouTube chat, and we'll get to them later on in the program. Now, let's welcome Kim. Thank you so much, and let's welcome Trier as well. I'm honored to be her co-founder. All right. Well, Kim, let's jump right into it. A lot of people probably know you from Radical Candor. Um, I always say if you're a leader and you don't have Radical Candor in your toolkit, then you are missing out. But tell folks, how does Kim Scott get from Radical Candor to Just Work? What inspired you to write this book? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, Chair, if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. And boy, did I. And one of the one of the most interesting experiences I had was shortly after the book came out, I was giving a workshop at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade and is one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And when I got finished giving the presentation, she pulled me aside and she said, you know, Kim, I'm really excited about rolling out Radical Candor at the team. I think it's going to build me the, help me build the kind of environment and culture that I really want and care about. But she said, Kim, I got to tell you that it's a lot harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. And I'm guessing that it's a lot harder for you than it is for your husband, who's a white engineer in Silicon Valley. Right. And she said, as soon as I offer even the most compassionate candor, I get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. Yeah, I'm sure. I I knew, I knew it was true. And, and, I, and when she said that, it made me realize a bunch of things at the same time. The first thing that it made me realize was that I had failed her as an upstander, as a colleague. I had not been the person, the colleague who I wanted to be because I had not noticed, like I had, as I said, mm-hmm. I had known her for a long time and I had never once seen her anything other than cheerful, unfailingly positive And believe me, in that period of time, she had what to be PO'd about. And so it really got me thinking, why had I not noticed the toll that this must have taken on her? And I had not not been there for her in the way that I thought of myself. And not only that, not only did I realize that I had been in denial about the things that were happening to her, 
her statement made me realize I had been in denial about the things that were happening to me as well. So right. I had I had not I had not acknowledged the things that were happening to me as a woman. And it's hard for the author of radical candor to admit that I was in denial, but but I was. I'm so sure. And it's it, one of the things that you you've used a couple a couple of terms. You've talked about being an upstander, and you know we'd love to learn more about what that is, but there's a lot of different roles that we can play. So talk to us about what are the roles that you may potentially be in when you're reflecting on the experiences that you've had in the workplace. Let's talk about roles before we go into the framework. Sure. So one of the things that I realized as I started sort of parsing uh, my, my own experiences is that at any given time, I might be playing one, two, or three, or even four different roles at the same time. Sometimes I was the leader. And in my in my role as leader, I think it was my responsibility to to prevent workplace injustice from happening. Okay. Uh, and and so that's one role. Now, other times I was an upstander. Hopefully, I was an upstander, or I was a failed upstander, as as in the case with this CEO. I was a bystander, and I think it it is increasingly in today's world we have any ambition not to be silent bystanders, but to be active upstanders, to intervene when we see things going wrong, either in work or just on the street. And so that's that's another role. Now, sometimes I was the person who was harmed, and I didn't like to think of myself in this role. I, I, I never wanted to think of myself as, as a victim. As a victim, yeah. yeah. But, but I was. Uh, I was harmed uh, at times. And even less did I want to think of myself as a perpetrator. And yet sometimes I was the person who caused harm. And in that role, it was, it was my job to listen to feedback that I was getting that I was causing harm and to address it. Uh, whereas in my role as as the person who was harmed, it was really my job to choose a response. And and I choose that word carefully because I think we have this default to silence when these things happen, in all the roles, mm-hmm. actually, but especially when we're the person harmed. And one of the goals I have with this book is to help us figure out what to say when we don't know what to say. Uh, and, We've and all to really, found ourselves yes. in that situation. <laughs> in various roles, yes. not knowing what to say, defaulting to silence. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's my, my hope is that if you do, you have a right to choose silence if you're a person harmed, but if you do choose silence, I hope it'll be a proactive conscious choice, not a default to silence. Cause when we yeah. default to silence, we lose our, our sense of agency. Yep. Okay. So we've got the person who's been harmed and you have a choice. Mm-hmm. We have the upstander, which is a bystander who intervenes. Mm-hmm. We have the person who causes harm, who needs to, you know, listen and, and change their behavior. And then we have the leader. And it's really interesting because when I first read the book, um, it's almost like I had to reflect on these roles and the framework as a person who had been harmed, but then I really had to take a hard look at myself as like a leader, right? What should I have been doing as a leader in these instances as well? So let's jump into the framework and let's talk about what are the root causes of workplace injustice? How do you name this and describe this in the book? Yeah, I think one of the things as I started thinking about my own experiences that I realized is that I had conflated three very different attitudes and behavior as though they were one. So sometimes we get bias, which I will define as not meaning it. Other times we get prejudice, which I will define as meaning it. And 
other times there's bullying, which I will define as being mean or meaning harm. Right. And these three attitudes, these are very different things. And yet very often we confuse them in our heads. And I think right. that makes it much harder to respond. And, and those simple, very practical definitions, right? So it's bias, not meaning it, prejudice, meaning it, and bullying being mean. Okay. Yes. So like contextualize that for us. What does that mean? What are some examples as people are processing and thinking about like how that shows up in everyday, you know, workplaces? Yeah. So I would say my very first experience with bias happened on the very first day of my very first summer internship. And I was standing by the elevator. I'm working at a bank in Memphis. I'm standing by the elevator and a man walks up to me and he said, asked me what my role is. He's an executive at the bank. And I explained that I'm a summer intern and he kind of cocks his head and he goes, Oh, I didn't know they let us hire pretty girls. And so in this role, I was the person harmed. And I knew that this was bias. I knew, like he had started the summer internship program because he wanted to hire more women. So he wasn't prejudiced per se. And he wasn't, he wasn't trying to be a jerk. Uh, I think he was trying to be charming in some kind of ham-fisted way. So, so I knew this was biased, but I still didn't know how to respond. So that's, that's one example. Now, prejudice is very different. Prejudice is when someone does mean it. So an example of that happened on, on when I was chit-chatting with a guy before, before a meeting. And he said to me, Oh, you know, my, my wife doesn't work because it's better for the children. And I didn't think he really meant that I was okay. neglecting my children. So That's I, one point of view. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Uh, and it, it may very well have been the fact that it was better for, it was better for their family. And I respect that, but, but I didn't, I didn't think he really meant, uh, I didn't think he was judging how I was raising my kids. So I made a joke and I said, Oh, you know, I decided to show up at work today because I thought it would be a good idea to neglect my children. <laughs> and and I'm, yeah, I'm expecting him to respond the way you did to laugh, but no, he digs in and he said, Oh, Kim, it is really not good that you are working. It's really oh, bad wow. for your kids. I have all these studies and this was going to be a big deal for me because we were working on a project together. And all of a sudden he thinks if I travel to, to go meet with the clients that I'm going to be, so he's going to not put me on the best clients. So, so I knew I had to, I knew I had to say something and we can talk in a few minutes about what you say to respond to these things. But next let's move on to bullying. But bullying is very different. Bullying, bull so different. And, and yes. for me in the book, this was my aha moment because, you know, Kim, we talked about a lot about this, but you know, when, when you were pushing me like, Trier, what are your bullying stories? And I was like, yeah, Kim, I haven't bullied in my career. Like you, you've known me long enough to know that like, if you come for me, I'm going to come right back at you. Like, yes. And then you were like, no, Trier, like let's really pushing. Like when we're, we're, when we are defining it in this way and I had to reflect, and this was really hard for me to, to acknowledge how much I've actually been bullied in my career. And I didn't stand up for myself and I didn't say anything. So, so what are some examples in the workplace of what this may look like for some folks who may feel like I, I did like, oh, I, I haven't been bullied in my career in the workplace. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So, so one example happened and I was in this case, I was the CEO and founder of the company. So I was, I thought I was safe from bullying in this role, but mm -hmm. alas, I was not. So I was giving some feedback to a guy who worked for me and I said to him towards the end of the conversation, as I am want to do, I said, what could I be doing or what could I stop doing that would help you do better work? And he kind of points his finger at me and he says, 
the problem here is you are the most aggressive woman I ever met. And, uh, and so this was this sort of, okay. yeah. And if I, if I was the most aggressive woman he ever met, I wasn't even on the list of the top 10 or top 100 most aggressive men. And furthermore, right. we were working in an aggressive industry and he just had that part of his job was dealing with aggression. So his problem was not my aggression. His problem was my gender. And in my case, that wasn't going to change. Mm, and okay. so, so now that re required a very, although I can't say I gave the best response to the world, but I can tell you what I should have said. That required a very different response from, from me. Okay. So these examples help for people to understand how this may show up day to day. And, and again, we can all reflect on this framework bias, not meaning it, prejudice, meaning it, and then also bullying, just being mean of, you know, our own experiences. But let's go back to this default to silence, right? So let's get tactical. Yes. How do we prevent defaulting to silence, right? We've both been there. We've all been there. What can people do in these moments? And like when they don't know what to do, when they don't yeah. know what to say. Yeah. So let's talk about first what leaders can do, and then we'll talk about what we as individuals can do. So in the case of bias, what, what you and I have talked a lot about, what we're rolling out with companies is bias interrupters. And so a bias interrupter is something that a leader needs to create a norm around on a team. And there's two parts to a bias interrupter. The first part is just coming up with a shared vocabulary on the team of what we're going to say, because we don't know what to say, as we've already established. So some teams we've worked with have just said bias alert. Another team that you worked with throws a purple flag. Uh, and, and now we have a virtual purple flag for, for video meetings. And, and everybody knows when somebody says whatever the, the word is, the phrase is bias alert or throws a purple flag, that something that bias has just been made manifest in the meeting. Right. And so that's the first part. Now, now we've interrupted it. Everybody knows it because if you're silent about bias, you actually reinforce it. You, you reflect and reinforce right. it. So now everybody knows that, that something has been said. Now we also, the leader also needs to teach the person whose bias has just been flagged what to do. Because this is hard. This, is, this, can, this can be a moment of shame for a lot of people. And so we need to work with people to learn how to manage their own shame so they can respond well. So the, the norm that we recommend is either the person gets it and says, thank you for pointing it out. I'm sorry. And then the meeting goes on. Or the person right. says, I don't quite understand. Maybe you can explain it to me after the meeting. And then the meeting goes on. And, and the point of this is that there's going to, bias is going to be expressed in pretty much every meeting, every day, everywhere. Especially as, you know, organizations and leaders continue to diversify their teams, their companies, your proximity to working with people that are different, having different experiences, um, bias is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so you want to be able to interrupt it very quickly and then and then move past it so you can get stuff done right one of the things that i really appreciate about this is that it's it's very tactical and it's very simple but it is it's one of those things that is subtle yet significant yes i know how many times i've been in meetings where 
I may be the only, the only non-white person, the only Mm -hmm. woman. And I'm the person that I'm going to pick up on all of this bias, but it's almost like, Hey, the responsibility is shared. Like we all know everyone's looking for it and anyone can call it. And it doesn't always have to be me. And when someone else calls it, it's not just Oh, Trier, right? Because we, I've, I've felt in some of, in some environments that it's, oh, there, there goes Trier calling yeah. something again, or, you know, Trier's hypersensitive or too sensitive. Yeah. But when you don't, when you have more of these homogenous teams and you have someone who may be the only that identifies in that, yeah, their, their experiences are going to be very different and they're going to pick up on these things. So I just appreciate that if you're, you're leading your organizations that, you know, Hey, everyone has this shared responsibility and there's a shared norm and reaction that we can all do that work to interrupt it and then make it, you know, a learning experience for everyone. It's so powerful. Yeah, and maybe something feels awkward, or feels off, and you're not sure. But now all of a sudden, it's your responsibility as an upstander to say bias alert. And it, bias alert, I think, is also okay. Yeah. Like so, something feels just giving voice to yeah. those things that feel off. And I love the purple sure flag because yes. for my teams that I've had, it's like there's a norm that I always like a red flag. Everyone who's ever worked for me knows what a red flag means. Everyone what knows what a mean? yellow flag. What's so a red, red flag? flag means we are totally off topic and bring it back. Like yeah. red flag, not relevant <laughs> park parking lot. It let's bring it back. Right. Let's yeah. reel it in. Yeah. Yellow flag is like, mm, like cautious. Are we sure that we really want yeah. to go there? Like I'm giving you an opportunity to choose your words. Right. right. Um, and now there's this purple flag, which is just like, Oh, bias right and, yeah. and and everyone knows what that means it's it's yeah. so powerful okay and no, knows what to do with it and knows moment. what to do with it right yeah. very tactical all right so now prejudice prejudice is probably a little harder a uh, lot harder um so what what do leaders do with prejudice it is ri- this is the tricky thing about being a leader because people on your team they have a right to believe whatever they want you you are not the thought police as a leader no matter how powerful you are and so they ha- they can believe whatever they want but they don't have a right to say or do whatever they want they don't have a right to impose their prejudices on other people on the team because that's going to kill your team's ability to collaborate And so as a leader, it's your responsibility to come up with a code of conduct Mm. to explain to folks where that line is. And this sounds like not that big of a deal. What's the big deal to write? It is hard to write a code of conduct. And and I've got a couple in the book and and we've talked about organizations where we've worked that had had good ones, uh, but but it's tricky. Let's yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about code of conduct because for me, you know, I'm a combat veteran, spent seven years active duty in the military. Code of conduct means something very specific to me. Yes. But what does that mean in organizations? Because I, I feel most organizations don't have a code of conduct. So what is that? Yeah. Does it have to be called a code of conduct? What is it and what is the purpose of it? What 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 purpose does it serve? Yeah, it doesn't have to be called a code of conduct. But by the way, the military's code of conduct is one of the best ones I've ever. It t- explains to you exactly what to do if, if you're when captured. you are captured. You know exactly what to do. It is very clear. It is like the first thing, and it's short. Make you memorize. Ah, uh, you know, when I was in basic training, I didn't feel that way. But it was you had short. To memorize it. <laughs> Multiple articles, but but yes, yeah. very clear, and um, you know, has have saved people's yeah. lives. But yeah. in organizations, what does that look like? So a code of conduct in an ideal world is sort of five or six key phrases that let someone know 
what you're all about and and what's okay to to do and what's not okay to do. Now, they the the most common problem with the code of conduct is that it becomes 26 pages long and it's like a legal cover your ass document. Right. And and that is not you can you cannot memorize 26 pages. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah. So what you really want to do is you want to make sure that you're you're declaring, for example, at Radical Candor, our code, our code of conduct is very simple, like power is bad, diversity is good uh, and, and things like that. And, and then we we give some examples underneath of what that means for how we how we should behave, challenge directly, care personally. Uh, and 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 when we give examples of w- what crossing a line might look like and so, and yeah very for, often examples for are- prejudice the code of conduct is drawing the line in the sand so you yes. can hold people accountable to say this is what we expect with your behavior your attitudes and your actions this is what you can and cannot do right yeah yeah okay. and most companies want to do so they they want to hold themselves to a standard that's higher than the law i mean obviously yeah. they want to obey the law but usually they want to go the extra mile. Since you said most organizations have this, where are organizations falling short then? If they have this, where are they falling short with whatever type of code of conduct that they may have in place? Either it's too long and it's buried in an HR document somewhere that nobody's ever read, or it's it's way too short and not detailed enough. Uh, okay. And usually it's too long and nobody yeah. nobody could possibly read it because it's yeah. too boring. So it needs to be short and punchy. In one of my last roles as the chief people officer, I was at this organization and they didn't even have values yet, um, which after about four years, like values are important. And um, and so we created these values, but the other thing, again, to your point of of something being too short, I think values should be punchy enough that your employees can memorize them, hang their hat on them, really talk about, you know, day to day, how do you show up and represent these values? Yes. The other thing that we did is we had you statements for each six values. So each value was no more than like three to four words, but there was a you statement um, for each of them. And so, or sorry, excuse me, there was we statements. So we say, we would do this, we would do this, that would help bring those to life, which again, was the line in the sand of how do we, how do we exhibit our attitudes and behaviors and what, what do we expect from our employees? So code of conduct. Okay. And it could just be HR rules. Like in, in the case of the guy who said I was neglecting my children for showing up, I was able to say it is an HR violation for you to, and, and that was very useful to be able to appeal to that. So bullying. Yes. What do, again, bullying that, that part of the book was just hardest to read and eye-opening to me as as an individual and also as a leader. Um, And this is an area where I reflected back on reading the book and just, I had to acknowledge I fell short so many times as a leader, but what can leaders do with bullying in their organization? How do they prevent bullying? Yeah, it is crucial to create consequences for bullying because the Mm. problem with bullying is that it works. It works. It is, it is quite effective for the bully and it's terrible for the team. Right. And so, so there's three consequences that are really effective. One is conversational consequences. 
Another is compensation consequences. So don't give the highest ratings and therefore the highest bonuses to the people on your team who are, maybe they're achieving great results, but they're leaving a trail of harm in their path. And career. There is a point in the, in the history of most companies where the jerks mm-hmm. begin to win. And that is yeah. the point where the, the company culture goes toxic and the company begins to lose. That is so true. So yeah, don't promote, Atlassian is a good, is a really good uh, case study in this. Don't promote your brilliant jerks. It's not worth it. They take too yeah. big of a toll in the long run. My mother would always say behavior that's rewarded is repeated. Yes. So why are we rewarding this behavior so that a person will then repeat it? Yes. So consequences. Well, I wish your mother had warned me because I did not create consequences for that guy who talked to me that way. I did not say you cannot talk to me or any other woman at this company that way. And as a result... It his behavior continued and, and it got worse. And of course, as you can imagine, it was worse with other women on the team who were who were not the founder and CEO. So yeah. at one point, this guy was was sitting on a table after a company all hands. And this young woman on the team came up with a paper plate and a half eaten crust of pizza. And she clearly needed to get to the garbage can, which was underneath the table. And she said, I need to get and she wanted to throw her paper plate away and he spreads his legs and says between my legs and Uh, that is the kind that's the problem if you don't stop mm -hmm. bullying early it gets worse and worse and worse worse and worse yeah your mother was right yeah and and i look this is this is really hard for as a chief people officer right um i was in an organization where i think one of the reasons this is also difficult is there were moments where Maybe I would have identified it as bullying happening within the organization, but then other leaders would say, well, Trier, this is a very direct culture. Like we are direct communicators and that's just the culture. And, and when you're new in an organization, like you're trying to, you want, you want it, you know, it to be authentic. And if that is the culture, and then it really just came down to that. We had an issue with the culture that we needed to to work through. Um, But that coupled with, the brilliant jerks. Sometimes the bullies are the ones that are getting, doing the most, having the largest impact. And in smaller organizations where you don't have, you know, you have single points of failure. How do you get, like, how do you remove that individual when they are, you know, what you need to get the business done? So it can be challenging, but it is definitely an area where leaders have to pay attention and get it right. Cause to your point, it's, it's that, it's that pivotal point in a organization's future where, you know, yeah. the bullies can win and take over the culture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It takes a lot of discipline to discipline. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So that's what leaders can do. So let's talk about what individuals can do maybe if they're being harmed and then also upstanders, what are some tools that they can do? Um, you know, going back to bias, what, what, what is that? Yeah. So I think in the, in the case of bias, an I statement really is the most effective thing because an I okay. statement helps you explain to the other person what's going on and invites them in to understand the situation from your perspective and to understand the harm they did with their words. So in the case, let's go back to the to, to the bank. I had no idea. I had no idea what to say. 
And, but of course I didn't, I was 18, who could expect me to, but fast forward 30 years, I'm now the author of Radical Candor, and I'm writing this new book, Just Work, and I still can't think of what I should have said. And so I put it out there on social media, and, and a guy who I am on a board of directors with said to me, thank you for sharing that story, because I know I've made that mistake. Mm. And now I won't make them. And so this is the this is one of the things that makes me optimistic about the time that we're living in. People are telling these stories and we're learning. People care. And so that was good that that he said that. And then he said, would you like me to tell you what you could have said that would have stopped me in my tracks? And I said, sure. And he said, if you had said, I don't think I can work here because I don't think you'll ever take me seriously when you're referring to me as pretty girl. He said, I never would have made that mistake again. And it was, of course, it seems so obvious in retrospect, but it was really helpful to hear from him. And, and this is, I really encourage people to do this, to go off and tell stories to each other and think, what, what should I have said? Because we've all been in those, those situations yeah. where we didn't know what to say. But the point here is start, if you think it's bias, start with the words I, and then see what else comes out of your mouth. So I statement, inviting them in so that they can um, understand what you're feeling or, you know, what, how it may have an impact on you. Because a lot of times it's not the intention, but it's the impact of what someone's saying or doing to the person who's being harmed. Yeah. Yeah. And the upstander, by the way, can use the I statement statement. as well. All right. Prejudice. What, What do we do with prejudice? Yes. Yeah. So in this case, I was happily at a company that did have this code of conduct. So I was able to say, it is an HR violation for you to tell me I'm neglecting my kids for showing up at work. And that had the desired impact. He knew he had crossed a line and he backed off. But it also, I was worried that that was not going to help us work well together. So I went on to say, look, I'm not going to make a thing of this with HR, but it... I. I just want us to agree. It is my decision together with my spouse, how we raise our, our kids. And it is your decision together with your spouse, how you raise your kids. And he didn't look totally convinced. <laughs> he seemed to still think he had a right to tell me what to do. And I said, look, I've got a lot of studies that show the opposite of what your studies, but I'm mm-hmm. guessing you don't want to read my studies any more than I want to read your studies. And furthermore, even if we could find a study that was the capital T truth, just because it's true on average doesn't mean it's true for my situation or your situation. So let's Mm. just agree we're all going to – and that worked. We wound up working well together, and he didn't seem to be bothered by my travel uh, or or anything else. So so an it statement really just makes it clear – to that person where, where the boundary is. And usually, even in the case of prejudice, the person is not looking to cause harm. They're not looking to, to impose it on you when they know that there's, they can't. Right. Okay. All right. And bullying. Bullying. There they are. There, there they are looking to cause harm. Yes. What, what do, what does a person harmed or an upstander can do with, Um, when they find themselves in a situation with bullying? You know, I learned a lot about this from my daughter when she was in third grade. Uh, Children teach us so much. (laughs) They do teach us quite a lot if we just listen to them. So she was getting bullied at school, and I, thinking I'm this great communicator, am counseling her to use an I statement. Just tell this child, you know, I feel sad when you do that. And she 
banged her fist on the table and she said, Mom, he is trying to make me sad. Why would I tell him he succeeded? And I'm like, oh, my goodness, you're right. And so that was where we really thought about using a you statement. You can't talk to me like that. Mm. Or in cases where where you might feel like that's going to escalate the situ- situation too much, you can ask a you question. What's going on for you here? Or even just change the subject. Where'd you get that tie? Where'd you get that shirt? And this this has the impact because very often with What's happening with bullying is you're, you're on your back foot and you're having to answer the question. So if you change the dynamic and push against the other person, then, then that is, is, it's a small conversational consequence, but it is a consequence. Yeah. One of the things that um, the military does a lot of investment in leadership training and communication. And one of the things that we learned when, um, I took a, I took a course on how to have difficult conversations, hostile Mm -hmm. conversations. And one of the things that they said is that a lot of times when you have a troop or someone reporting to you on your, on your, in your, you know, on your unit and they're acting out or they're acting angry or bullying, show some compassion and humanity and just say, Hey, Putting aside work, what's going on with you? Like what's yes. going on with you, right? Yeah. Um, because it's definitely something about them. And I've used that to this day, and it's just so powerful. I think it's a it's a different way of thinking of the you statement, but again, pushing it back on them because typically people who are bullying and have bring that into the workplace, like it's really about them. And so finding out like what's really going on. And that's not always the case, yeah. but sometimes it is, and and that can go very far, especially in this in this environment, in this climate where let's just show everyone, you know, some grace. Yeah. Who is really at their best right now? (laughs) Not me. Everyone hitting their one year, you know, shelter in place, (laughs) pandemic. It's a lot, right? It is a lot. lot. Um, Okay. So again, this is very tactical. Very good. Want to kind of shift gears a little bit. Should we show, should we show a visual? Can can I show a visual? Yeah. Let's, uh, Show a visual. So for folks who uh, who are in front of the Zoom, this basically summarizes the root causes of workplace injustice. So there's bias, prejudice, bullying. Bias is not meaning it. Prejudice is meaning it. Bullying is being mean. Bias interrupters are, are a tactic that leaders can use to begin to encourage both upstanders and people harmed to speak up when they see or hear bias. Uh, a, a code of conduct is a tool that leaders can use to make sure that prejudice doesn't destroy the culture on their team. And finally, in the case of bullying, leaders have got to create consequences for bullying. If your leaders aren't doing any of those things, you still, as either an upstander or a person harmed, can use an I statement to respond to bias, an it statement to respond to prejudice, or a you statement to respond to bullying. Yep. Great overview. And it's just, it's so practical and, and again, very tactical. So let's switch gears a little bit because um, we definitely want to make sure that we have time for questions. But you said it earlier with the radical candor code of conduct, power corrupts. Yes. So let's talk about what happens when, what happens when power comes into the equation with these workplace injustices what happened and in high level, like what should people, what should organizations and leaders be thinking about when we're talking about power? 
Yeah, so once power enters the equation, bias and prejudice can become discrimination. And mm. this, can, this can manifest in the way that we hire and the way we promote uh, so on. And often it's like, I hate to call it unconscious discrimination, but that is often, unfortunately, what it is when it's biased. So that's discrimination happens with bias and prejudice plus power. And then when bullying, when, when the bully has too much power, un- unilateral power in an organization, that becomes harassment, uh, right. either verbal or just abusive behavior. And then finally, when there is touch plus power, mm. then you get physical violations ranging from the creepy neck massage to to sexual assault or or just assault in the workplace. Yeah. And I remember, you know, the first time I read that and I, and I was like, well, Kim, is there always power involved, right? For physical touch. And then as we were reflecting on, you know, you were incredibly vulnerable um, and, and thank you for sharing your stories in the book, incredibly vulnerable of experiences that you've had. We've had conversations on experiences that I've had. It's interesting that how, you helped me broaden my perspective on when we're talking about power. Power could even be someone being bigger than you and having physical power over you, not necessarily like positional power. But I actually had never really thought about power in those moments of physical violations, but power definitely plays a part. Yeah, it plays a huge, I mean, I'm maybe acutely aware of physical power because I'm five feet tall and not especially fit, but, but it is, but it's also positional power. And and it's really the positional power that causes people to behave in such a sort of unacceptable way. And I think the other thing to think about in terms of power is when you are a leader and you're setting up these systems in your organization that are going to define who gets hired, who doesn't get hired, who gets promoted, who doesn't get promoted. Right. Without realizing it, I think you are, you're almost like setting up a a Stanford prison experiment. I mean, hopefully Mm. you're setting it up so that terrible behavior like happened in that experiment doesn't happen. You want to set it up very consciously for justice. You you want to create systems that are more likely to result in systemic justice. And if you don't do that, you're going to get systemic injustice in your organization. No, I love that. And when you also talk about um, courage, institutional courage, right? Leaders having the institutional courage to to do what's needed to prevent these things from occurring, but also having the discipline, right? Consistency and persistency, which are different. Um, So Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor. The book is now out. Everyone should go and get a copy. Just Um, work. What is, what's some of the Radical Candor feedback that you've gotten on the book? What are people saying? How is it being received? What are some things that stand out to you? So one of the things that is most exciting to me is that people are putting the ideas into practice. Just yesterday, I got an email from Alan Eustace, who's an engineering leader here in Silicon Valley, one of the people I admire incredibly. And he said he just hired a woman just yesterday. And he said, before I read your book, I would have asked her what her current salary was and matched it, thinking I was giving her a market salary. But he said, after I read your book, I decided to ask her what the men who were her peers were being paid, not what she was getting paid. And it turned out the men were getting paid more. And she said, and and he said, I paid her that. So 
Go, Alan. Thank you for reading the book. Thank you for putting it into practice. Uh, I, I also am hearing interesting feedback on bias interrupters. This okay. is hard. It is hard to do, and it is hard to get a team. It's like you, you really have to build stamina for this. Yeah. And yet when it happens, it makes a really big difference. Um, so that's, that's I, I acknowledge the difficulty. It sounds so simple. Oh, just do a bias interrupter, come up yeah. with a word, use the word. Uh, words are hard. Words are important, but words are hard. Um, and then the other thing that I've heard is that people people are glad to know what to do. They're glad to have ideas about think. I mean, I don't think that even if you put every idea and every if everybody put every idea and just work into practice. I'm not saying injustice would disappear from the world. But just because it doesn't have all the world's answers doesn't mean it's not a step in the right direction. And I think we're all ready to take a step in the right direction. Long overdue. And, and for me, that is what was one of my biggest takeaways. Like, again, if you know Radical Candor, you know Kim Scott, you know Kim Scott's going to give you a two by two. You know Kim Scott's <laughs> going to give you a framework and be very very specific on how to make changes in your behaviors and um, things that you can implement as a leader, as an individual, as a professional. And, you know, it's not a silver bullet, but we, for, for all the engineers and the product and the marketing people, that's not even my space, but I can speak intelligently about engineering frameworks, right? Yeah. And, and product PM frameworks. Yeah. But when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, when it comes to really transforming organizations, like there's no go-to framework or something for people to put in their toolkit that they can leverage, right? And what are practical and tactical things that they can do. And, and that is what I think really sets just work apart and is incredibly exciting that there's so many things to take away that really meets organizations and individuals where they're at of how you can put these things into practice and really create some change. Okay. We've gotten, we've gotten a lot of questions, so okay. definitely want to jump into that. But the last question, just to leave everyone with, um, what there's a lot that people can take away from this book, but what is the one thing that you want people to really take away from this book? You know, in tech, we talk a lot about the power of the default. And when you change the power of the default, you change the world. And I really hope that this, that if you read this book, it will help you change your default to silence and set your default to speaking up. Yeah. Okay. All right. First question that we have is in reference to what you said earlier about bias, how do you turn the biased person to reanalyze, to reassess themselves and realize what they, what they said or what they did? Yeah, so here is a great story about a simple thing that, that a person did. So, so Aileen Lee told me this story from uh, who's, who's uh, started Cowboy VC. Aileen said she was going into a meeting with another company and she went in with two colleagues who were men and they all sat down. It was one of those long conference room tables. And then the, the people from the other side came in and the first guy sat across from her one colleague who was a man. The next guy sat across from the other colleague who was a man. And then the rest of the people filed on down the table, leaving Aileen sitting all by herself at the end. So kind of a, a biased, uh, not probably intending to 
exclude Aileen, but excluding Aileen. And then mm. Aileen starts talking, and it's as though she hasn't opened her mouth. People just ignore her and turn to her two colleagues who are men. And in order for her company to get the deal they were trying to get, they were leaning on Aileen's expertise. So this was a big, it was a big, it was not only a justice problem, it was a practical problem for the team. And so her colleague stood up and he said, I think Aileen and I should just switch seats. And so he sat there at the end all by his lonesome. Mm. And that changed the whole dynamic in the room. And, uh, and he did that for two reasons. One, because he cared about Aileen and he felt like it was his job to make sure the right thing happened, that she wasn't ignored. But I think it was also important for him to do that because he wanted to win the deal. And he knew right. that. that I, and so that's the idea of just work is that there's a justice element, but there's also a practical element. Because injustice, in addition to being immoral, is totally inefficient. Uh, so, so he wanted to get it right for both the, the moral reasons and the, uh, and the practical reasons. So I think that if you, if you are willing to just notice what's going on and to think of some way to shift the dynamic, do it. And you can start with that word, I. You don't have to know what's going to come out of your mouth next when you think it's bias. I don't think you meant that the way it sounded. I am not actually working here in that capacity. I'm this capacity. I talked to a, a CEO who... <laughs> who was standing by the val- he's he's a, a man of color and he was standing next to the valet desk and, and an employee at the company came and handed him her keys and thinking he was the valet and he said to her he said I'm actually your CEO. I'm not your valet. I'm here to serve in a different capacity. And that like wow. totally, yeah, it was, it was, it was a gentle way. It was a very kind way of him, but he wasn't going to let it stand. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have had similar experiences, um, even on the executive team as an executive leader within organizations when I open the door or greet someone coming in and I have been mistaken for the receptionist or, yeah. um, you know, um, a junior person on the team of, you know, and, and Hey, can I, can you, to be kind, can you, can I get water? We've got snacks. We've got yeah. all types of great snacks. I know my team's responsible for it. We take good pride in all the snacks that we provide our employees. Um, but take that as a very different way as this. I, that's my job as a receptionist to greet them. Um, so I, unfortunately too familiar with, with those type of situations. Okay. Next question. Um, question for both of you. Is there any new work practices in the last year that companies have celebrated that makes you cringe? That is really interesting. Do you have an idea? You're going to say something. Work practices in the last year that companies have celebrated that makes you cringe. The only thing that really comes to mind, um, and Kim actually said this earlier, but I think a nuance, and I understood why she used that term, but one of the things, language is so important. And language can be, we, we found that language is sometimes that first barrier into having these difficult discussions, these challenging conversations because you don't know what to say and you don't want to offend someone, right? Do I say black? Do I say African-American, Hispanic, Latinx? What does that mean? LGBTQIA, 
what it's all the same. No, it's not right. And so people really need to educate themselves on language. But one of the things that, you know, I would encourage organizations and individuals to, to challenge on, and it does make me cringe at times is, um, to, to no longer use the terms people of color, women of color or BIPOC. And so what we find is that one, it's too ambiguous. I think it's ambiguous language that people can hide behind when they don't feel comfortable just saying what they mean. And a lot of times it can mask things. So for an example, for example, there's an organization that said, hey, we're so proud. We have 30% of our organization are people of color. Great, but let's dig into those numbers. Of that 30%, 96% identified as Asian. And so when you then think about the rest of the organization, is that really a diverse organization? No, you have an overrepresented group, but you really did not have representation. I think at one time they didn't even have a single black employee. So using this language, it just masks things. And the other part is that for right now, just think about, okay, the last time that I used the term people of color, what did I mean? There are people that you're probably thinking identify in that way, and not everyone does. Yes. Not everyone who you think is a person of color identifies being a person of color. So again, like, who are we talking about? So encouraging organizations to set language standards for their company. Hey, we use Black, not African-American, because African-American is U.S.-centric. We may have Black employees that are immigrants from the Caribbean, from other places that don't identify as being African-American, but are from the African diaspora, so we use Black. There's, and so there's so many nuances with language. And so that's one of the things that does make me cringe is when I do hear people use some of that language. Kim, what are, what's anything that comes to mind for you? I've got a good one. But first, I want to say thank you for an excellent example of bias interruption. <laughs> so what you all just saw there was uh, bias interruption done right. Kim and I do this all the day, all, all day, <laughs> back and forth. If you can even we imagine, have practice. Right? We, have we practice. both call all the time and we welcome it. It just, it makes us better. We come from a place of learning, but yes, anytime, Ken. So thank you. Uh, so I, one, one thing that, I, that really makes me cringe, I don't know if this has been celebrated, but I've heard it often enough that I'm going to mention it, which is <clears throat> there, was a, there was a company and the, and the lawyer at the company advised all of the executives, all of whom were men, not to take any women out for drinks ever because they could get accused, but to take the, the, the men uh, out for drinks after, after okay. they had gone. And that, to me, is a disaster. That, to me, is discrimination, uh, full stop. So, so th- and yet it's not uncommon. I've, I've heard it enough said that, that if, you're, if you're not going to meet with, with women one-on-one, then don't meet with men one-on-one, yeah. uh, full stop. Otherwise, it's discrimination. I have one more that I'm going to throw out of practices in the last year that we've seen. Organizations have got to stop going through the motions and doing the window dressing when it comes yes. to social justice issues. Everyone, like you can't just post a black square on your social media handles and say black lives matter and then not do anything. You have to put your money where your mouth is and lead by action. That's the last thing that I'm going to leave everyone with. Okay. Next question is my boss and CFO recently told us that we should be grateful. We still have jobs during a pandemic. After we asked questions about organization operations, I am indeed grateful to have a job, but that feels invalidating. How can we respond to situations like this? So one of the things that I advise people when you have, I would 
I would classify that as sort of bullying uh, from, from the boss. One of the things I advise people to do is locate the exit nearest you. You're, we're not taking flights that much anymore, but you can still locate the exit nearest you. Right. And despite the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic, it turns out that there's a fair number of companies that are hiring. And, and so make sure you know what your exit options are. And when you know what your exit options are, you're then, you then have what's called in negotiations a best alternative to a negotiated agreement. You know, what you, can, you know how hard you can push because you know the risks you can take. And so that is, that is one, uh, one bit of advice I would, I would offer. I think also if it sounds like this, this person may not be open to, to feedback, but if I were going to give this person some feedback, what I would say is y- you're not going to get the best out of people from a place of fear when you're threatening, you should be grateful for this job. That that's just yeah. not, you're not going to get people's most innovative work. You're not going to bring get them bringing their whole selves to work. Inspiring. It's not yeah. motivating. Yeah, it's demotivating. Yeah, yeah. and in fact, during a pandemic, it's more important than ever during a global yeah. to try to motivate people because yeah. it's hard to control them. I think this question also highlights something that leaders should be cognizant of. Sometimes in organizations, you know, leaders do a really good job of looking down, taking care of the organization, making sure that there's checks and balances in place, making sure that there's an infrastructure to prevent these workplace injustices. And if they occur, what do people do? An area where organizations really need to do better is what happens at the senior most levels? What happens if yeah. your CEO is the bully? What happens if your CFO is the one that is exhibiting bias? Or what happens if you're seeing those attitudes and behaviors from your board or investors? And so having those conversations before that happens so that people know what to do, right? And those are very important conversations that the board, investors, and you know your executive team needs to be aware, especially when you're bringing new people on so that you know what to do. And I will personally tell you as a chief people officer where everyone, like it's my job to solve and handle all of those issues. What happens when the person who's responsible for solving it for everyone else could be the person who's being harmed, right? Then what happens? And so those are conversations that need to be had again, before you find yourself in the situation where it's like, okay, well, we don't know what to do. And so um, that question just flags that of of leaders who are listening, thinking about like, have we had those conversations? What would we do? What would I do? And do we have those things in place? Yeah. and, And are you setting up your organizational structure so that there are checks and balances in place so that if one person says that there's somebody else for employees who are harmed by that kind of comment to go and talk to. Okay. Next question. How can a leader support team members with disabilities and create the right culture regarding it? So I think one thing, again, to to think about is to make sure that you're aware of of ableist language, biased language. One of the things that I learned in the book uh, is how often I misuse site metaphors. Mm-hmm. And I, I hired, as I was writing the book, I, I worked with someone who I, I'll call a bias buster. She was brilliant at pointing out to me uh, these kinds of, of things that I had been unaware of. 
And so she pointed out to me how I'm using the word see when what I really mean is understand, for example. Mm, right. And, and furthermore, one of the other people who was helping me to edit the book is a, is a blind historian and brilliant, clear thinker, able to, able to take manuscripts and digest it and rework it in, in record time. It's incredible to work with him. And I really liked him and valued the work that he was doing. And so I really, I was grateful to, to Breeze, my, my bias buster, and I was grateful to Zach, the historian who was helping me to edit the book. And the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to harm Zach or, or to, to use language that was, that was um, going to be harmful to him. And so I felt I had really gotten this under control. And I thought I had I had corrected my language. And right before I sent the book in to to my editor, I did a quick search on the word C. And I had misused the word C 99 times. And so so this is hard. This is really hard and words really matter. So I think one thing to do is to be aware of ableist language. But when I talked to Zach about the situation, he said, look, I don't really care about the words you use. What I care about is that something like he told me 78% of blind people don't have jobs that they are well qualified to do. I think making sure that you're looking at your hiring practices to make sure that you're giving people opportunities who are qualified for the jobs. Yeah. And the only thing that I would, yeah, yeah. The only thing that I would add to that is uh, thank you for the question. um, But and this kind of goes back to things that make me cringe that organizations, uh, companies may be doing is that when we're talking about diversity and equity and inclusion, the definition of diversity is very broad and it is, and it sh- needs to be inclusive. It's not just race. It's not just black and white. Um, and I think that we as or- organizations have to get smarter of defining what diversity means for that organization, making sure that it's inclusive and that everyone sees themselves in that definition. And so that regardless- Notices themselves. Bias no- flag. You. notices, um, you know, the, themselves in that definition. And so, you know, people can, um, you know, feel included. And so we have to do a better job of that. Yes. Okay. Um, next question. Many employees increasingly want to bring their politics into the workplace. How do you balance these desires with the distractions and possible conflicts that can result? Um, I will just quickly say, one of the things that I think the organizations need to do is I think it's really important for an organization to make clear what they see as politics and not. And I think that, you know, more recently, a lot of people will say, hey, a lot of these social justice issues, like this is politics, we don't need to bring them into the workplace. Personally, I do not think that, for example, stop Asian hate, Black Lives Matter, those are not political issues. I think those are human rights issues. And so that is, you know, my stance, but I have also been in organizations. I've been in companies where we've sent messaging saying, if you feel like this is a um, political statement, we do not. We feel this is a human rights issue and we are in support and we will continue to support these issues. But Kim, what are your thoughts? You know, there's a saying that politics divides, and I disagree with that. I think part of the reason that we are where we are as a nation is because we have been so reluctant to take on political issues and to talk uh, to people who disagree with us politically. So one of the things that I have tried, and others can disagree, but one of the things I've tried to do as a leader 
is to share my political views with people, but also to encourage them to share their political views and to make sure that the that if we do have a conversation around these topics, that it is a respectful conversation. I'll never, I mean, I, I've spent most of my career here in Silicon Valley and, and there's, there is, I would say, a lack of diversity in terms of political views here. And so I was on a team and there, there were about 15 people on the team. And there, were, there was one person who was a Republican and, uh, and the, rest, the rest of the team were, were Democrats and pretty staunch. And I remember we were chatting before a meeting about an issue and, and people were sort of maligning the other side of the issue as, you know, only an idiot would think that. And I could see that there was one guy in the room who's very uncomfortable about the way, uh, the way that this was going down. And I said something. I said, look, I, I'm fine with you all talking, but don't shut him down. Don't shut, don't mm-hmm. shut him out of the conversation. We want to be inclusive. Now, there are, there are, some, there are some views that I cannot, be, I cannot include. Uh, and and I would not call those political views. I would tend to call them moral views or or prejudiced mm-hmm. views. Yeah. It's- well, I think we have time for one last question. Okay. So uh, this is a good one and very relevant. With a shift towards work from home in the last year, what's the biggest mistake you've both seen companies make? I think one of the biggest mistakes that companies have made is, and it's not just a work from home mistake, but it's sort of a global pandemic mistake, is not to be realistic about what what we can and cannot do. And, and trying, I think one of the things I recommend is a proactive forbearance list, like identify the things that you can't get done so that you can do the things that are the most important to do. Because as you said earlier, this year has been a lot and, and it takes, it has taken a cognitive load on as well as an emotional toll, I think on all of us. And so making sure that you're creating space for people to heal and mend in these times, I think is really important. Yeah. Putting on my chief people officer hat, there's so much that I could say on this. Um, Cause I think that Organizations have, some have tried to do the best that they can, but there have definitely been missteps. Um, I think the biggest mistake that we've seen is now that we are a year into this, every time I say that, it's, it's no, so I can't shocking. Um, but thinking about the pop, the, there is a new underrepresented population that we now have in organizations. For organizations that the work from home culture, maybe you had a couple of employees who did it, but it wasn't the primary culture. You have a new underrepresented population that has onboarded and their entire experience has been work from home. And I think we just need to be very thoughtful of that group and what their experiences are because your previous employees, what your culture means is very different in the office, right? So you have these group of people that, have not had lunch and and gotten together and had all hands in your all hand area and and had the swag in the office or there's just like, I think about Gusto. Gusto is, I think has a very, very strong, strong culture, right? They're the company that they don't wear shoes in the office and they always have the heated floors. And there's so many very specific things that happen in the office that make their culture them. But none of that is experienced 
working from home. So how do you replace that? How do you find ways to incorporate it? Um, and so just thinking about that population and what it may feel like. Um, one person gave an example that said, well, I was working from home at my last company, got a new job. I was sitting at my same desk, same computer. They sent me the same MacBook, right? And they were like, the only thing that really changed was my coffee mug. And so they said, it didn't feel different to me, right? So how do we make it feel different so that there can be this disruption that says, hey, you're at a new company doing new things, but just something to think about. One of my favorite examples of how to make it feel different is sometimes companies send people books when they get onboarded that reflect their culture. Um, But in all seriousness, I think another thing that is really helpful in this time is We lose the texture of in-person communication over Zoom, but we also are in each other's living rooms. You are sitting in my bedroom right now, which is kind of a weird thing. And uh, and so not pretending that that's not happening, but talk about what's when the the cat runs past, like, like just incorporate the, the, the new texture that we're getting from one another can help us care personally more about each other. Well, Kim Scott, author of Just Work, Get Shit Done, Fast and Fair. Thank you so much. This has been great. Very much enjoyed spending this time with you. A little different from a different perspective. Um, we encourage everyone to pick up Kim's new book. Um, you know, whether you want to support your local bookstore, even virtually, getting it on Amazon, online. You can also find it at justworktogether.com. Um, and if you'd like to work, watch more virtual programs and support the Commonwealth Club, please visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm Tria Bryant. Thank you so much for joining us and take care. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.